Yes. Good job. Good job. <laughs> Hello. Hello, everyone. Hello. You're in charge, Michael. <laughs> I just oh. go here. <gasps> or not. We're waiting for our slide deck. <laughs> How do we get the slides to show up there? Oh, we need slides. We need some help here. Ooh, nice. <laughs> <Woo -hoo. laughs> ah, there we go. Hello. Go ahead. So, hi, I'm Ola. I'm a software engineer. I do mostly web compatibility stuff at Mozilla and work on DevTools. And I am Kathleen Berger. I am a policy strategist, and I lead our engagement with Global Internet Fora. Hi, I'm Michael Henready. I'm an open innovation strategist for Mozilla. I'm currently working on Project Common Voice, which I'll talk about in a minute here. And while it might sound, since we all work at Mozilla, that we constantly work together, but our teams are actually quite distinct. Um, so this is not part of our regular jobs and uh, quite unusual. Yeah, except of that we actually work in the same office and have like very interesting conversations sometimes. That's right. And. Uh, Something that we all have in common is that we each have a voice. And through sharing our voice, we've learned that we can build empathy, trust, and a shared understanding of how we move forward together. We think that this principle is at the core of Republica and the core of the internet in general. But right now, the web needs our voices more than ever, both figuratively and literally. Figuratively, because we have reached a turning point where people are starting to demand better protections of their private data and better protections from the products and services they use on the internet. But also the web needs our voice quite literally as the rise of voice and voice assistance is starting to be pervasive in our lives. But right now, these assistants, they don't work very well with the web. And I'd like to talk a little bit about why today and uh, how we can move forward together. But first, let's take a step back. A few years ago, Mozilla was working on an open source mobile operating system. It was called Firefox OS. And as part of this, we were building a voice assistant that's very similar to Apple's Siri. But we found that it was actually quite difficult to build a voice assistant that was at the level of quality that people expected from Siri, OK Google, Cortana. And uh, the reason was, um, was that it was really hard to find enough data. So I'd like to talk a little bit about data today. It turns out that computers learn to understand human speech very similar to how humans learn to understand human speech. We have to listen to and process a lot of people talking before we can understand meeting. And they, it's the exact same for computers. However, computers actually learn a lot more slowly than people do. And so it requires a vast amount of this, what we call voice data, enabled to train a very accurate speech recognition system. This is the order of magnitude of maybe 10,000s of hours, um, and that's just for a single language. So when we were building Firefox OS, we had a real tough time collecting this data. I mean, first of all, there's very few of these data sets that are out there. If you do find them, they're either extremely small or extremely expensive or both. And especially if you're looking for languages other than English and with accents other than North American male, well, you're, you're pretty much out of luck. In Firefox OS, we had this vision where we could bring the next billion people online. And what this meant to us was we needed to have a very cheap phone, around 20 euros, and we also needed to have localized content for emerging markets like India and Africa. But a collection of voice recordings in languages from, from these parts of the world, they just they didn't exist, and so we're out of luck. 
So that's why Mozilla created the Common Voice project. Common Voice is Mozilla's initiative to crowdsource a large public data set of human voices in all languages, all accents, all genders, to make speech technology more open, inclusive, uh, and diverse for all of us. It's pretty simple how it works. We have a website, voice.mozilla.org. You can go there right now, and you just record your voice there. You can also listen to other people's recordings and validate what they said. This is an important part of the quality of the voice data set that we're building. We launched um, last July 2017, and in six months, we were able to collect 500 hours of spoken English from 20,000 different people. This is the second largest public data set that we know about for voice, but it's only the beginning. Our current efforts are around localizing the website and launching in new languages. We're currently translating into 42 different languages. German is one of them, but also Spanish, French, and then also some smaller languages like Chavish, Macedonian, Welsh, Irish. So you might ask yourself, well, if Mozilla is no longer building Firefox OS, why, is it, why does it care about this voice data? Why is it collecting this voice data? That's a good question. So first and foremost, Mozilla is still building the world's most advanced open source speech recognition engine. It's on GitHub. Uh, and last, last November, we reached a milestone where our speech recognition engine is now better than human accuracy for English. So we are actually not subhuman, but superhuman accuracy level. And we continue to develop this engine to today. But that's not the only reason we want to collect this data. We also have some, we when we take a look at the voice ecosystem, we think there are some problems there. Right? And at the forefront of the voice ecosystem are these things called virtual voice assistants, or maybe smart speakers. These are really on the rise today. But if you take a look behind the scenes, you will see that actually this industry is dominated by a few large and very powerful corporations. And so, and the reason why that it's only a few and not more people uh, is because it's very, 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 very hard to make accurate speak re speech recognition at the level you're used to. So we already talked about the data being one of those barriers. But, but once you get the data, you still need to hire a team of machine learning scientists, right? Good luck finding those. You still need to navigate a patent minefield. Voices, that could be a whole other talk. Voice is really hard. Uh, it has a really lots of tough patents to get around, of course. And then you need vast com computational resources and highly specialized hardware. It'd be cheaper for you to just buy a Ferrari and drive around the world than it is to buy the computers necessary to train voice recognition engines. And this creates a winner-take-all um, winner scenario where not many people can be involved. And, and that's unfortunate, because we think that everyone should be able to build independent speech services, whether or not you're a big corporation, a small corporation, a startup, university, a researcher, hobbyist. We think everyone should be able to take part. And so that's why we're doing this work. And indeed, our voice has incredible potential. I mean, voice, obviously, it's a very natural interface, right? We learn to talk before we learn to use a computer or even read. But you can also think about what a voice-enabled internet could do. It could en empower a whole new type of, a whole new generation, a whole new groups of people to give access to information. So for instance, think vision impaired or perhaps uh, physically disabled, illiterate populations in the world, children and, ed and elderly. They could all be helped by voice technology. 
But it's sad because voice technology doesn't play so well with the web right now. It's more like uh, separate silos than it is the open web. And we think this is bad for both voice technology and the web because the web was invented for this free spread of information across the globe. And why shouldn't our voices be a part of that? So this is Mozilla's effort to unlock the voice ecosystem. Common Voice is our effort to collect data for everyone, not just for ourselves. And then Deep Speech is our software we're building to make speech recognition cheap and easy for everyone. But this is just step one. After we unlock voice technology and voice software, we still need to figure out how the web and voice is going to play together. And this includes conversations around user experience, web standards, accessibility, inclu inclusivity, and consensus building. Now to talk a little bit more about how those things work on the internet is Ola. Thank you very much. Mike. Thank you. So Common Voice is amazing and en actually enabled your voice. So open web standards are really important, not just for voice empowering APIs, but actually for like the whole web, right? Imagine a web without standards where sites and applications work differently and browsers and applications uh, and also on devices. Well, this is actually happening. So the first browser came out in 1991. So 27 years ago. Why is that? There's so many smart people actually working on this. Let me give you like a short, little bit context and introduction, because Captain Picard, when he says something, he's normally right, so let's study history and go back. So back then, during like 27 years ago, it was a really rough time back then, right? And when you, as old as I am, you might remember the browser wars. So it all began with Sir Tim Berners-Lee, great person you might all know, not in the picture, though. And he invented in the late 1990s this thing we call the web today, not the internet. He also invented the very first browser called World Wide Web, which was renamed to Nexus for obvious reasons. Um, and other browsers appeared through the years, but no one was like really usable. And then suddenly, there was one that actually stood out. Mosaic was the browser that actually led to the internet boom of the 1990s. 1993, it made the web relevant and touched off like a whole revolution. In 1994, Mosaic was on its way to become the world's standard interface. Mosaic was the very true first multi-platform browser. And that was a huge thing back then, like imagine a browser that works just on one platform. No one would actually do that today, right? Several companies licensed Mosaic to create their own commercial browsers. One of the engineers, uh, the Mosaic engineers, Mark Anderson, decided, nah, I like open source. So he released the code into the wild and created this browser called Mosaic Netscape that had to be renamed to Netscape Navigator, you might remember. A year later, so in 1995, Netscape Navigator was the dominating browser of the whole web because of two reasons. It important, uh, improved Mosaic usability and reliability a lot and was able, wait for it, you'll love it, load pages 
like show pages as the loaded. Was you remember this one? Yeah, that was really cool. Ad was free for non-commercial use, and today you'd be like, wait, wait, how can a browser not be free? 1995, Microsoft released the very first Internet Explorer. That was actually the beginning of the very first browser war. Users suddenly had a choice again between two usable multi-platform browsers that were free, because they were at some point also for commercial use. The war began. Battle for market share was quite rough. Browser vendors added features and support for various specs on the fly. So, new versions were released. Rapidly, and during that time, no one actually cared about standards or how to implement things. They basically just slap things together and be like, "Yeah, we can release that. Bye." So, for example, Netscape released JavaScript support in 1995, and Microsoft replicated that and be like, "Hey, that's cool. Implement a totally different way, same API, and call it JScript." More HTML tags appeared, like Blink and Marquee, that are still very important until today. And they appeared to be the same implementation, totally different. In 1996, both added CSS support and reached feature parity within one year. Might be like, oh, that's that's just three languages. It's not that much, right? But it's actually like a massive achievement. And Opera, for example, released this browser the same year, but no one apparently noticed because the features weren't there. In October 1997, IE4 was released and distributed with Windows 95, and that was actually a game changer because we know everyone is kind of lazy and don't want to install software. It was there, so people used it, and that was great. So this is why they became like the new dominant browser. Attending a peak of 96% in 2002, so the first browser war was actually a lot about features and features and did I forget something? Oh, features, yeah, and like adding them before anyone else had a chance. The second browser war didn't look that much different, but there was just more of a focus on things like、uh, DevTools, for example, and that was really great. This time, the combination—not just one op-、uh, operating system, but also like devices—that was the big game changer. And this time, Chrome won the war, the second browser war, because Chrome devices were actually cheaper. Also, that was the point where everyone underneath started to use the kind of the same browser engines, so that was really great. As already mentioned before, like browser vendors really didn't care that much about standards; they just wanted to have the features released first, right? Because things got really out of hand, this nice person, Sir Tim Berners-Lee, formed in 1994 this thing called World Wide Web Consortium, short W3C, and they really want to foster web standards. So the W3C wrote specs, which were like a set of rules and how to implement requested features in all browsers. You can think of those. As like code of conduct for code, and they're still like our common ground for the web. But they were slammed with feature requests, and vendors often ended up with like half-done specs if they had any at all. They needed help. The community listened, so more organizations were formed by individuals from the community. 
like the WOT WG, TC39, CSS working groups. There were so many, and there are still until today. And those groups actually talked to the community, and they listened. And through the direct feedback and the help from the community, things got so much better. Your voice actually suddenly mattered again. And it does until today. The bigger the crowd actually is, the more diverse the community is, the better something gets like a wide amount of users. After all those years, we're at the point where we still have compact issues, but they're actually taken care of. It works really well because the whole community like, raised the voice and helped out to provide a solution. But we have a new, uh, we face like a new threat today. Vendors from big companies, they're providing services that force incompatibility. They block out other browsers on purpose, so you use their browser. Although it would like, work in the other browsers too, but they claim differently. So as a user, suddenly you don't have a choice anymore if you want, for example, your data to be collected or not. I mean, imagine having not, not have a choice. Either having your privacy or not being able to work because all the tools your workspace is providing, you need the browser for. Or not being able to read your sensitive email without, for example, selling them or letting them be sell, sold to like an ad company. Maybe one day, you are not being able to use any of those services at all because the companies decide your data is not valuable enough for them. Imagine a world without choice. This is why your voice actually matters, why privacy matters. Raise your voice before it's late. And I'm sure Kathleen will be able to tell you more about the how. Are you loving it so far? Um, it's sort of hard to describe how inspiring and uplifting it has been for me to work with these two individuals that you can no longer see because they went off stage. Um, but they make me believe that it is really up to us to not just talk about a better future, but to make it happen. And if you're anything like me, uh, the idea of driving inclusion and trust in the digital age through amazing new technologies like a voice-enabled internet in knowing there are smart people out there who know how to A, learn the lessons from the past and develop standards that we need to empower not just those already in power, but all of us, all of us, then, well, there's your hope in troubled times. And as a political scientist, I feel like there's nothing more powerful and democratic than your voice. But then again, if you're anything like me, no picture of the world is that rosy <laughs> or straightforward. Um, I love Project Common Voice. I love the lessons learned from the setting standards in an inclusive, collaborative manner. I love that we use openness and decentralization to make sure that the online ecosystem is developing in a healthy manner. But I also worry a lot. When merging developments around emerging tech with my job, the challenge is to design policy engagement with that sort of future in mind, because it is up to us that these technologies really do benefit us all, rather than make us even more vulnerable. As Kashmir Hill realized in a recent experiment in which he allowed a bunch of different connected devices into our, ho into our house, Ashley, in the hope that these would ease her life, she said, and I quote, I thought the house would take care of me, but instead everything in it 
now had the power to ask me to do things. Overcrowded power plugs, different apps for every single device, lack of interoperability between different manufacturers, needing to reformulate your questions and commands over and over again until your voice-enabled assistant finally gets it, or not, which is when you probably get up to make your coffee yourself, there are many glitches. Um, and if you think about the fact that most devices come with internet functionality built in as a feature these days, just in case, because, you know, the future, well, it turns out it is really, really hard for companies to resist peeking at that data, no matter how sensitive. And we haven't even started talking about security, vulnerabilities, surveillance, data breaches, blackmailing, and other forms of exploitation, or the fact that the data economy listens, it monitors, it maps our every action, thought, feeling, hope, and fear, and it remembers. It remembers more and longer than any individual human being can. And what about the fact that most voice-enabled assistants these days respond in a female voice? Gender disparities, anyone? Breaking up traditional misogynistic, discriminating, oppressing, or exploitative power structures that's of the technologies that we design and create is hard. Um, and what about, okay, glitch, see, glitches. <laughs> um, and on top of power structures, we then also find increasing cases of addiction, a decline in empathy, a rise in anxiety, isolation, and dependence, because convenience is such a powerful, alluring factor in everyone's life, and really no blame here. That is perfectly human. In fact, realizing when exactly you cross the lines between fun, engaging, convenient to creepy, controlling, oppressive, is hardly ever clear-cut or globally agreed upon. Um, our tolerance levels differ, and human curiosity drives us to push further, to experiment, to test, to ride the wave. Um, that's ultimately the beauty of being human. Um, the many critics out there, um, and here in the room, or on stage, uh, help us see the risk. They help us assess the danger. They help us raise our voices for political and social causes. Um, but our biggest challenge is not just to acknowledge um, the importance of these, the importance of privacy, the importance of security, the importance of to have a choice, the importance of individual agency. The challenge is to realize that waiting and watching will come at unredeemable costs, that we are already selling out our freedoms unless we act. <clears throat> I'm sorry. <laughs> um, unless we establish a balance and unless we merge the inspiration with responsibility, all of us together, as individuals, as advocates, as engineers, as policymakers, and as business people. So if you still remember the hope from the, future, <laughs> the, the beginning of the talk, where it's like sort of inspirational and bright, as depressing as the political and social climate is right now, and I don't even have to mention very much, this vision is still attainable. And believing that it is, is the first step that all of us have to take in order to make it a reality. And the clicker no longer works. <laughs> um, and I'm not trying to be cliched at all. Um, Engaging, analyzing, advocating, designing and building with a future in mind, um, with a future that enriches everyone's life, not just our own. That's what it takes, putting people before profit. And for today, when you walk back out into the beautifully sunny courtyard, consider this.
Picture your vision of a utopian positive future. How does your voice contribute to that? Map this vision and identify your personal road towards achieving it, because we all can, and all skills and perspectives are needed. So if you want the tech to work for you and everyone else, make sure it has the training data it needs to be inclusive. Think accents, dialects, speech habits, intonation. So do go to voice.mozilla.org. Um, if you want the tech to work for you and not the other way around, make sure it augments your capabilities. Don't be scared. Make it your own. And realize that the tech will change our lives. If we, use our voice, if we use voice commands to access the internet in the future, this will affect our ability to learn and to understand what data we share, with whom, and to what extent. So if you're an acrocad, explain. If you're an engineer, design with diversity, privacy, and security in mind. If you're a private investor, consider business models that cater to the greater good. If you're a policymaker, think about education policy. Where does tech empower us? Where does it need safeguards? Where does it help us learn? And where do we need to teach better and how to use it? You still have a voice, so let's make sure it stays that way. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. It doesn't work any longer.